We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 19. If you'll open your Bibles there, we're going to continue in our study through 2 Samuel. So, 2 Samuel chapter 19. Let me ask you a question as you're making your way there. How many of you have ever dealt with a pot stirrer? Anybody ever deal with a pot stirrer? Bunch of hands, bunch of nodding, right? The, the, these are, you know, the drama queens, the drama kings. They, they just live for conflict, right? And, and, and some folks, man, they're just not happy unless they've stirred up division and conflict and strife. You know, maybe it's a coworker that you're thinking about right now. Maybe it's, you know, a family member that is the resident pot stirrer, you know, or a neighbor. Maybe it's a parent on your kid's soccer team. I don't know. But, but maybe you're the pot stirrer, you know? Um, but, but listen, some folks have a way, I mean, it is, it's not a spiritual gift, but they just have a, just a, a capacity that they just show up with a, with a huge spoon to like everything. And they're just, and, and I'm of the mind, I think if you stir the pot, you should have to lick the spoon, man, for crying out loud. You know, but... But some folks, they just got a huge spoon. They just show up. You can just always count on They're going to stir the pot, right? And we can be comforted that even Jesus had to deal with pot stirrers. We know them as the Pharisees. They're always around. They're always stirring the pot. John chapter 8, he's dealing with these guys. Jesus, he, he says, look, I'm the light of the world. If you follow me, you're going to have the light of life. And then sure enough, the pot stirrers pipe up. They're like, hey, your testimony's not valid. Because you're talking about yourself. In other words, they're going, hey, look, you're, you're just a man. You're talking about, you know, things about salvation and so on, stuff of God, and you're just a, a man. And so Jesus deals with these potsters. He looks at them, and, and uh, you know, he, he's like, look, my testimony is valid because I know where I come from and I know where I'm going. In other words, look, I'm God. My testimony is valid. I came, came from heaven. I'm going back to my Father in heaven. And, and so you all don't know what you're talking about kind of thing. And then Jesus said something on the heels of that that is foundational to the, to the get of our, of our message today. He, he, he said to them, look, my, my testimony is valid because, because I'm God, basically. Um, but he went on to say, and I'll put it on the screen for you. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. How's that to make friends, win friends, influence people? He's like, you, your dad's the devil. My dad's God in heaven, but your dad, he, he's Satan. And he says, you know, the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. One of the other translations of this is he speaks his own native tongue. His, 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 you know, his mother language is lying, deceit. So when he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Now, did you catch that? See, because what Jesus is telling these people, he says, look, my desire and my message is from heaven. But he says, your desire and your message is from hell. You pot stirrer, you, you, you know, there just always being like you are. James 3, 6, he says, the tongue is a fire. James says that it, it, it corrupts the whole body. He, he said that it sets the course of your life on fire. And, and he says, and the tongue itself is set on fire by hell. I love the book of James, man. He just like, boom, there you go. I'm going to tell you, just like it is. And so this is what James says. He says, look, your, your, your tongue is set on fire by hell. See, because the Bible says this. The Bible says that Satan is a thief. And that his key objective is to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That's, that's, that's his entire objective. Peter, in, in 1 Peter 5, he likens, him, likens the devil to a hungry lion. And, and, and he says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for who he's going to uh, devour. And so what Jesus is doing is he's dealing with these pot stirrers, and he's going, look, my message... And, and, and my, des- my desire and my message, it comes, it comes from heaven. Your desire, your message, you pot stirrers, it's, it's coming straight from hell. Your, 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 your tongue is set on, on fire by, by hell. And today I, we're going to meet a pot stirrer. The guy's name is Sheba. 
And like most potsters, Sheba, uh, man, he shows up at the worst possible time and, and he wreaks havoc, causes a lot of damage. And underneath it all, we have to understand that really it's demonic in nature. That, it, that his tongue is actually set on fire by hell. And the pot stirs in your life. Their tongue is set on fire by hell. We have to understand where it's coming from. Second Samuel chapter 19, we'll pick it up for context in verse 40. tells us there, Now the king went on to Gilgal, and Chimham went with him. And all the people of Judah escorted the king, and also half the people of Israel. Now this should be a joyous occasion. Absalom has rebelled. He's caused a huge division. The the whole nation of Israel has been divided and at war. (coughs) Over 20,000 people (coughs) have lost their lives in that conflict. And God has given David and his troops victory over, over those that are perpetuating this division. And he's now reuniting the entire kingdom. They've all welcomed David back as their, as their king. And everybody runs to go greet him on the other side of the Jordan and to escort him back. And so this should have been a joyous occasion. Look, the war is over, the rebellion is ended, and the king is coming home. right? And this is the supreme desire of God. For, for us, as a, as a body of believers, as Christians, he wants us to be in a place where we're not at war, where we're not in rebellion, where, where we, we're welcoming our king back, where we are dwelling together in unity. This is the desire of the Lord. The psalmist said this, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Jesus, right before he, you know, he's going to go to the cross, and, and right before he, he ascends into heaven, he's, he's you know, they, or rather right before he goes to the, to the cross, and of course, subsequently ascend into heaven, but before he goes, he's praying to God the Father, and he says this, he says, now I'm no longer in the world, but these, his people, us, you and me, are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be, and here it is, one as we are one. Jesus, here in his high priestly prayer, it's all about unity. That's the, that's the burden of his heart. God, I, want them, I don't want them to be divided. I want you to protect them, and I want you to keep them, and I want them to be one as you and I are one. And it's precisely for this reason that attacking unity is such a huge target of the enemy. Because the enemy knows that God desires unity supremely. One of the chief things on Jesus' mind before he goes to the cross. And so, of course, that's the thing that the enemy is going to go after. So right on cue here, things are going great. Verse 41, just then, just when, just when everything's getting back on track and brothers and sisters are being reunited and peace and harmony is coming back to the land... Just then, all the men of Israel came to the king. Now, when it says all the men of Israel, what it's referring to is half of the the guys, you know, half of this group, the other half of the group of of the men of Israel who didn't go across the Jordan uh, to go greet the king. So all the men of Israel come to the king, and they said to the king, Why have our brethren, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king, his household, and all David's men uh, with him across the Jordan. So, so here you've got these northern tribes, <coughs> ten of them all together, all upset because these two tribes, the tribe of Judah and so on, that they have come to take David across and that these guys got left out. And so what, what you've got here is that they're, 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 you've got this prideful envy going on. And, and so they're upset and they come and they're belly aching to David going, well, why weren't we invited? Y- y'all had a party and like we, we weren't invited to come. And so, so they're, you know, belly aching and all. Verse 42, so all the men of Judah, now they're going to respond. Uh, They're like, oh, no, you did not. You know, so verse 42, all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel. And they're they're like, because the king is a close relative of ours. Why then are you angry over this matter? 
Have we ever eaten at the king's expense? Or, or has he given us any gift? Right? So what they're saying is they're like, what? why are you guys upset? It's not like we're getting anything out of the deal. It's kind of like, kind of like this. You know, you, you got a situation, a family situation, and, and you got, you know, the patriarch of the family, and uh, someone is, is, you know, caring for this, for this person and mindful of them and wanting to take care of them, and the, the other family members are like, what's up? Why, why, why are you taking care of him? Like, what, are you trying to get, you know, your spot in the will? You know, you want, you want him to leave everything to you, kind of, and so there becomes this, this jealousy and this envy and this, this prideful bickering. And so this is what the guys of, of Judah are saying. They're like, we're, we're not doing this to get any, we're not trying to sponge off the guy. He's our family. We're just, we're just taking care of him, man. You guys are messed up, kind of deal. And the men, verse 43, of Israel answered the men of Judah, and they said, we have 10 shares in the king. If you want to talk about family, you, you know, you're two tribes, we're 10 tribes, we've got 10 shares in the king. Therefore, we also have more right to David than you. Why then do you despise us? Uh, were we not the first to advise bringing back our king? You'll remember before David came back, he's like, look, I don't want to come back till everybody's all on board with this thing. And, and there was a group of people going, what the heck? Let's bring the king back. Why are you guys delaying? That's what they're talking about. They're like, we were the first ones that wanted to bring David back. And, and now you leave us out of the welcome home party. Like, that's messed up kind of thing. And <clears throat> they said, you know, we're not the first to advise bringing back our king. Yet, the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. And so what you have here is they are just what's coming out of their mouth, the men of Judah, in reaction to this is just it's just daggers. It's harsh words. And maybe, you know, you've been in that situation, you know, you're just minding your own business and then all of a sudden somebody attacks you, says something to you. And and we have a tendency sometimes when we've been hit to really lash out and react harshly, right? And so that's what's going on here. Now Here's the irony. The argument is about who's more loyal to the king and who has the greater right to honor him. Now, where were all of them a couple of weeks prior to this? They're like, we don't want you as king. We want Absalom as king. But now, you know, they're, they're in a totally different mindset and now they're arguing over who loves him more. You know, it's kind of like the disciples, you know, arguing over who's the greatest, Jesus is, is trying to tell them, you knuckleheads, I'm going to die for your sin. You guys, you know, apart from me, you can do nothing, you know. You, you're, you're going to hell in a handbasket, and I'm going to pay for all your sins. And here you are, you're arguing over who's the greatest, you know. <laughs> and what Jesus doesn't say is, I'm the greatest, you know. But he is. And, they, you know, and so here's what's going on. It's just completely ironic that this is, they're all fighting over who's the most loyal and they're all guilty of being betrayers. Now, what's going on here? What's going on is spiritual warfare. Because a beautiful thing is happening. It's a beautiful thing, man. The whole nation has been divided. And now we're all coming together, man. Now, you know, the king is coming back home. Now we, we, we've got unity and we've got a celebration. And you know what? Satan can't stand it. Absolutely can't stand healing, reconciliation, restoration of the kingdom. And Satan is like, oh, no, uh, uh, this is not what's going down. So what happens is, and this is such a common tactic of the enemy for you and me, that, that he does not want unity. He doesn't want harmony. He doesn't want everything going well. Some of y'all lived the truth of this this morning coming to church. Because you're going to come to church and the last thing Satan wants you to do is to come and, and have unity and harmony and reconciliation with God. So it's World War III in some of y'all's cars coming down here, you know. Now I drove behind a few of you on the way into church. If you were fighting, I didn't see it. I don't know. I just know from 25 years of ministry experience, some of y'all had a fight on the way to church. It's spiritual warfare. last thing the enemy wants is for us to have reconciliation and healing. And a restoration of the kingdom of God. 
And so that's always what he goes after. And he wants to stir up contentions. He wants to stir up a conflict. He just wants to be a big old pot stirrer. And so there's a very strategic way this happens. There's a number of ways that, that the enemy accomplishes this. I've talked before about an unholy trinity. You know, we have, we have the holy trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But there's an unholy trinity at work in your life and my life to cause us to forsake the Lord and to, to really just go the headlong way of, of Satan. And the unholy trinity, is, it begins with you, your sinful flesh. And then you have the sinful world. And then you have the, the demons, you know, Satan and a third of the angels that fell with him that are, that are demonically at work here in the world. And so you have this unholy trinity that has you in its crosshairs. And so the, 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 the way this goes down, well, James said this in James 4.1. He said, what is causing the quarrels and the fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? And so what happens is your flesh has some sort of an evil desire. In this case, you've got the prideful envy of of the the Israelites that are going, wait wait a minute, we we were left out of the party. So their flesh has taken offense. And then conversely, you've got the prideful indignation of the men of Judah who are saying, well, why are you bellyaching? Why are you accusing us of, of purposefully like leaving you out so we could get something to it? And so there you have the work of the flesh already going on. Right, the, 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 the offense that's been taken on both sides. And the world just reinforces these feelings, these attitudes, and so on. That's right. If somebody did that to me, I'd you know, go after them kind of thing. And then the demonic world just, just stirs the pot. Just, just right there on top of it. You know? And so the next thing you know, you're all up in your brother's face. You have experienced this. You know exactly what this process is. And so this is exactly what's going on here. <clears throat> the Bible says in, in 1 John chapter 2 that whoever claims to be in the light but hates his brother walks in darkness. And, and in that state, the Apostle John says, when you're walking in darkness, he says, you don't know where you're going because you're blinded by the darkness. You ever, you ever getting up in the, in the middle of the night, you, you know, maybe go into the bathroom and it's totally dark and you slam your foot, you know, into the side of the bed or well, that's a treat, isn't it, when that happens? What's happening? You're walking in darkness. You're blinded by the darkness. And so that's what happens is that when you don't see, when you're blinded, when you don't know where you're going, what happens? You hit things. Well, the same works in this idea of when you're blinded spiritually and you're taking offense, what do we have a tendency to do when we're walking in darkness? We want to hit back, man. We want to hit back. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. Jesus speaking. Part of his Sermon on the Mount here. And he says, You have heard that it was said, Matthew 5, 21, You've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council, but whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Now what Jesus is articulating here is that there's this progression. You, you become angry, you, you, you say, you know, you call, you know, someone a, a, a nice name, and, and then, you know, you pronounce judgment upon them. You're a fool. That's the progression. The idea is, you know, you're angry, you take offense. That's what that, that means when it says uh, whoever is angry. It means literally to take offense. So what happens is something goes down, just like these guys, you know, in, in, in Israel. And, and they're, they're, they take offense. Whoa, why, why weren't we invited to the party? You guys are all messed up and, and you're up to something. We don't like it. 
and, we, and, and you're trying to cheese us out of something here. And so you take offense. And then that ratchets up to the very, to the very next level. What happens? What does raka mean? It means literally empty-headed. And so when you take offense and you're, you, somebody's angered you, now all of a sudden you're, you're saying, well, you're stupid. Right? That's the idea. And so you're beginning, you're beginning now to lash out. And, and Jesus says then the, the next thing in the, the progression is, not, not, do we, not only do we take offense, we become angry, not only do we lash out, we call the person Raka, <clears throat> but then what happens is we pronounce judgment upon them. We call them a fool. And, and in calling them a fool, the idea is that you're questioning their character. In other words, you, you're no longer saying, well, you're stupid, you're empty-headed. No, now we're saying, well, you knew exactly what you're doing. You're a fool. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm questioning your motives. You just, you just chose to do you know, the, the, this horrible thing. And so the, the issue here at hand, the end result, is that the hatred blinds us. And we lash out and we cause damage. And it's exactly what's going on in our text. It's exactly the, the, the dynamic. And some of you, it's the dynamic that's going on in your marriage. It's the dynamic that's going on in a key relationship right now. You're like, man, I, don't, I do not like where this is going because I'm, I'm cooking on a, on a really righteous anger right now. And, I, and, and, and I, don't, you know, I don't want you to mess with that, you know. Don't be a buzzkill, man. I, I want to I be angry with this person. Well, no, that's the thing that the, that the, that the, that the Lord wants to go after. See, because relationships are, are so important to God. Listen, he's gone to great lengths to secure the relationships. And I want you to think about right now, and as much as maybe you don't want to, the, the area where you're in contention with a brother or a sister. Because that relationship's important to God. Jesus was once asked the question, hey, what's the most important commandment? I'll put it on the screen for you. Jesus said to them in response to it, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and the great commandment, and the second is like it. I'm going to give you a freebie. You ask for the first, I'll give you the second too. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands hang all the law and the prophets. You've got 66 books in your Bible, and every single book can be summed up. The entire you know, Bible can be summed up in two commands. Love God and love others. The Ten Commandments, they're divided into those two things. First four, love God. Last six, love others. That's the, that's, that's the attitude. That's the idea. And so the, the point is, is that God loves us and we are commanded to love him and to love others. And this is not optional. We're commanded to do this. Jesus told his disciples, listen, in Luke chapter 17, he goes, look, offenses are inevitable. But woe to the person through who they, whom they come. He, he goes on to say, look, you've got to do whatever it is, I'm paraphrasing, whatever it takes to work it out, to not be divided. So how do we do that? How do we work it out? Well, the first thing is, <coughs> is that we reaffirm the relationship. We reaffirm the relationship. So if you're divided from somebody right now, you have to reaffirm the relationship. What does that mean? Well, just what I just read in Matthew 22, that, that Jesus says, look, the, the two most important commandments are to love me and to love others. So, so you, you got to understand that relationship is important. And, that, and the reaffirming is to say, I can't just throw this thing out. I can't just, I can't just toss this thing out. I can't just say, well, that's inconvenient. I taught at a marriage retreat yesterday up in Big Bear, and, and I, was, I was talking to them just about the... Why is it that God puts this barrier around marriage and says, I hate divorce? It's because he wants to make you miserable? Is that why? No, it's, it, it's for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is that marriage is a vehicle for the destruction of your flesh. <laughs> That's romantic, isn't it? It's a vehicle for the destruction of your flesh. See, because the thing is, is that any other relationship, I've been married for 31 years in June, and any other relationship, I guess I'll phrase it this way, 
If Brenda had to contend with anybody else like she's had to contend with me, she would say, I'm done with the friendship. But see, she can't. Because God said, no, 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 I'm putting a little circle around this and I'm saying, you cannot step outside of this circle. So Brenda's like, oh man, how long do I have to bear with this guy? God's like, death do you part, you know? And so what happens is, is that that's what God does. And, And he says, I'm going to put you in a vehicle where you're going to have to die to yourself. I was introducing this subject. I told the story about a, a gal that needed a, a, a kidney transplant at our church years and years ago. And so a bunch of us went down to get tested to see if we could qualify to give her a kidney. And, and, and so in the process, you know, the psychologist talks to you. Are you sure you know what you're getting into? Kind of and then you give the blood test. So I go down to the lab, and I'm giving my blood, and the gal says to me, Oh, so you're here to donate an organ. Are you donating a liver or are you donating a kidney? And I'm like, well, considering you can live without a kidney, but you can't live without a liver, I think I'm here to donate a kidney. You know? And, And see, I was there to make a donation. I wasn't there to make a sacrifice of my life. Right? And a lot of people, they they get into a marriage relationship, and it's like, oh, I'll make a donation. No, it's going to cost you your life. You're giving your liver, for crying out loud. And so, so the thing is, is that the reaffirming of the relationship is to go, I, this is vital to God. Like, he wants me not to just think of it as disposable. Secondly, not only do we reaffirm the relationship, we release our wrath. Ephesians 4.26 says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not the, let the sun go down on your wrath, okay? So, so we have to release our wrath. We have to be able to go, okay, I'm not going to give, full, the Bible says it's a fool that gives full vent to his feelings. So, so I, have to, I have to turn the wrath part over to God. I'm angry, we gotta work through this, the anger part, but we're gonna work through it with the idea that says the, the, the wrath part needs to be left out of it. How do we do that? Well, third point, don't react. That name, Raka, you know, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna lash out, you know, you're empty-headed. No, don't react. Fourthly, resist the urge to pass judgment. Oh, you knew what you were doing. You left us out on purpose. You wanted to have a big welcome home party for King David, and you wanted to leave us out of the process. No, that wasn't even part of the deal. So often what happens is we get divided from somebody and we start ascribing motives to that person. Oh, they were doing this and they knew exactly. And maybe they were, I don't know, and neither do you, and that's the point. And so, you know, you, you, you don't react, you resist the urge to pass judgment. And number five, you reconcile. You go to that person. And that's what Jesus goes on to say. We're still here in Matthew chapter five. And, and he, so he says there in verse 23, continuing, therefore... If you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar, go your way first, be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. We're going to partake of communion today. And I'm going to encourage you, some of y'all, look, before you come and partake of communion, maybe you got to go outside and make a phone call. Maybe you got to seek somebody out and, and seek to be reconciled, you know, to, to reach out and, and touch someone in a godly way, you know. And, and, and so, so really super important. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Right now, some of you are thinking, you're like, okay, so the person, the way I understand, verses 23 and 24, if, if, if I'm going to worship God and I remember... That your brother has something against you. So, so if, if I've done something wrong to somebody, that i got to go to them. That's what I hear you saying, Pastor. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. All right, so if they have done something wrong to me, because I haven't done nothing wrong. So if they've done something wrong to me, then they can just rot in Hades until they got to come to me. That's what this says, right? Well, you're half right. Yes, they have to come to you. But there's a catch, okay? Turn to Matthew chapter 18. (coughs) 
Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. Jesus again speaking. So he says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, See, Matthew 5 was if you are going to worship God and, and then all of a sudden you remember, oh, you've sinned against your brother. You got, a, you, got some, you got some business to take care of. But now he says, if your brother sins against you, write him off. Consider the relationship dead. Move on with your life. No, that, that, that's, not, that's the wrong translation. That's the world's translation. Jesus says, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he hears you, you have gained your brother. Listen, that's the motive. A lot of times we like the go part because I'm going to go and I'm going to tell the person off. And I'm going to say, you know, I'm going to you with both barrels loaded, you know, kind of thing. And, and he says, no, no, you go to him and you talk to him alone. That's the other part. We would love to go to everybody else and talk to about what our brother has done to us. And which one of us has not done that? God have mercy on us. God forgive us. Because that is just perpetuating division. Right? And, and the Bible says there's seven things that God hates. One of the things that he hates is a brother, a brother who sows discord among the other brothers. So, so if, if you don't go to your brother alone and deal with the sin, just you and he alone, you and your sister alone, and you decide you're going to try them in the court of public opinion, you've completely missed this. And God hates it. And so he says, go and tell him his fault, you and he alone. And the purpose, the motivation is you're seeking to gain your brother, seeking to gain your sister. And so it's a matter of, look, we need to sit down and talk. And I'm coming because I want a relationship to be fixed. Sometimes we don't care about the relationship being fixed, just to be perfectly honest. We're like, I'm just about done with this relationship. And trust me, this is... This is a painful message to say. Because there are relationships where we would just be so content to say, that thing goes in, in the shredder. And I don't want to deal with it ever again. And Jesus says, look, you, know, you go to him. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more. That by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be Establish. It's just like, hey, look, I went to to one on one. We tried to work it out. It's not happening. Let's get. Let's go. Let's let's go find somebody we can sit down with together. Go. We need we need a mediator here. You know, a, br- a brother, a sister in Christ, and we need to sit down and 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 try and work through this. Verse seventeen says, and if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. Okay, let's take it to the church leadership. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Let me tell you what that does not mean. That does not mean that you say you're dead to me. You know, heathen, tax. No, how do we treat heathens and tax collectors? We pray for them. We, you know, it's a matter of saying, look, they're out of fellowship with God. How do we treat anybody who's out of fellowship with God? You know, we see the world do things like, you know, pick whatever agenda you want, whatever huge sin is making the headlines in the news, and we want to vilify the sinner. Look, the world's just doing what the world does. And so what do we, they're not the enemy. We talked about this several months ago, that that the, 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 the captives aren't the enemy. It's the one who's taken them captive to do his will that's the enemy. And so what we do is we pray for them because they've been taken captive to do the will of the enemy. And so, so that's the idea of, of let them be to you as a heathen or a tax collector. It's a matter of saying, look, we can't have fellowship right now because we're divided, but I can labor in prayer because they're in bondage to sin. And so that's the idea here. And so what God has done here is he's got a redundant system. Matthew chapter 5, he says, look, if you've done something wrong, go to the person. Matthew 18, he says, if they've done something wrong, you go to the person, right? And so you've got, on both ends, a double, this redundant NASA backup system that says, hey, look, you've done something wrong, you go to them. If they've done something wrong, you go to them. If she's done something wrong, you go to her. If, if, if you've done something wrong, you go to her. Everybody has the obligation on both sides. 
And what happens by doing this is God is saying, the relationship to me is more important than whatever it is y'all are fighting about. Don't you know that with your kids? Your kids get in a fight. What are you interested in as mom and dad? Peace. I don't care about who got what. I don't, I don't care. Just get along for crying out loud, or I'm going to make you so miserable, you know. No, you just want peace. You just want your kids to get along. Just want some peace and quiet for crying out loud. And God just wants peace. He wants harmony. And so he puts the onus on both y'all and says, maybe one of you will be in the spirit to, pr- to pursue reconciliation here. There's no room for saying, well, it's their thing. They got to come to me. Uh-uh. No. We always, always, both of us have to go. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 and 10. Two are better than one. Because they have a good reward for their labor. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. That's the idea here. And so we go. And our heart is to go with an attitude of seeking reconciliation. Romans 12, 17 and 18. Do not repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. As far as it depends on you. Now, you know, it might be out of your control. You might do this. You might exercise this. You might try, and the person will not be reconciled. All right, well, you want to stand before your judge, your maker, and say, God, you know I tried. And God will say, yeah, I know you tried, and it's on them. And so that's, that's the idea here. You want to go in a spirit of gentleness. Proverbs 15.1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Think about the context of that in, in our text here. You've got the, the men of Israel coming to Judah, and they're going, Hey, you guys stole David away, and you didn't invite us to the party, and we're mad at you. And what if the men of Judah had said, Would you forgive us? We're so, we didn't mean, to, we didn't mean to, to insult you guys. We, we're so sorry. Now, they weren't able to say that because they're so indignant because they're like, well, well, that wasn't our intention. And you guys are just, you're just stupid, right? And so what happened was they responded, the text says, with very, very harsh words. And so it's off to the races. Now, having said all this, let me just do this just for the sake of, of housekeeping with this topic. Um, there are some that you do need to break fellowship with. Okay, there, there are some relationships that are absolutely toxic and that are dangerous, okay? And, and the hesitancy in saying that is that we want to chalk up the very difficult things and say, oh, they're toxic, and, you know, because not everyone that we think is toxic actually is toxic. In fact, the majority aren't, but some are. Some are toxic, some are unhealthy, some are, are abusive, and I'm not talking about those. And even if I am talking about those, even if, even if you know, your situation fits the bill where it's like, look, we can't have fellowship because there's abuse, then, then I would say, okay, but you still have to forgive. You don't, you, you, don't have to, you don't have to go back and rekindle a relationship. You don't have to be forced into a, into a destructive, abusive relationship. But you still have to forgive. Mark eleven twenty five 25 tells us, and whenever you stand praying, you have anything against anyone, forgive him. Anything, anyone. That pretty much covers it, right? You can't go, well, does this fit outside of that? I don't have to forgive him if anything, anyone. So when you stand praying, you forgive him. Why? That your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. Now, for some of you, this is a struggle, okay? Um, and it's the last thing I'll say on this before we move on, but because some of you have been profoundly wronged. I mean, you're here, it's all that you can do to hear this and not want to throw something at me right now. And, and, and listen, I, I, I would say this by way of encouragement to you. Romans twelve nineteen says, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And that's, sometimes it's a situation where you just go, you know what? God knows. 
God knows, and I can just turn it over to him. The wrong, the, 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 the part of you that cries out and says, someone needs to pay. Oh, trust me. They'll pay. You just turn them over to the one who judges righteously. The one who takes a pure and a perfect vengeance. And so if that's you, you just turn them over to God. Well, back in 2 Samuel, now verse, or chapter 20, neither the men of Judah nor the men of Israel do any of this. Offenses are taken, harsh words are spoken. And so now Sheba steps forward and he starts stirring the pot. Chapter 20, verse 1. And there happened to be there a rebel, a scoundrel, a dirty, rotten guy whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjamite, and he blew a trumpet. And he said, we have no share in David. And metaphorically speaking, I mean, that's just, you know, the the divisive ones, the pot stirrers, they're always the ones that, you know, have trumpet, will travel, you know, and they're the blowing of the trumpet thing, like, hey, here comes division, here comes some stirring of the pot. We have no share in David, nor do we have inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. And so every man of Israel departed David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. Now, okay, just right there. It goes back to, I mean, sometimes people are just so stuck on stupid, it's incredible. And they're, in the beginning, their big complaint is, hey, who's more loyal to David? You guys left us out of the party. We're more loyal to David than you are. And so when the guys respond and say, you're high, what are you talking about? They're like, well, fine, we're going to leave David then. Well, you just proved your point then that you're not, you know? I mean, it's like ridiculous here. And so this is, this is what's going on here. And it says, but the men of Judah from Jordan, as far as Jerusalem, remained loyal to their king. And now David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten women, his concubines, whom he had left to keep the house, and he put them in seclusion, and he supported them, but did not go in to them. And so they were shut up to live, or shut up to the day of their death, living in widowhood. Um, Just the painful picture of division right there. And I, I don't think it's any coincidence that the Holy Spirit just says, just see this snapshot here, because Absalom went into these women when he was perpetuating the the rebellion against David, took his concubines, took David's concubines, and he slept with them in the sight of all Israel to tell everybody, hey, there's a new sheriff in town and ain't nothing of my dad's sacred. Like, I'm going to go kill my dad and and take all his stuff. There's a new sheriff in town. And so now David and these women have been defiled. So he's going to take care of them until the day they die. But the tragedy is, is that they're going to live like widows. They're never going to be remarried, never going to enjoy, you know, kids and all of that, that stuff. And it's all just a painful picture of sin and rebellion. And so the Holy Spirit is just pouring this in here, just saying, you don't want to be a pot stirrer. You don't want to be divisive because this is the fruit. This is the result. It's ugly. It's nasty. <clears throat> Verse 4, and the king said to Amasa, assemble the men of Judah for me within three days and be Present here yourself. Remember, Amasa was the general that went with, with, uh, with, with uh, Absalom. And then when David came back, he made Amasa his own general. He's trying to perpetuate, you know, unity and everything. And he's like, look, I, I just win everybody's hearts over. I'm not coming back, you know, to, to execute vengeance on everybody. I want to come back with love and forgiveness. And so he makes Amasa his own general. So he, here he says, look, we got a problem. we got to deal with this Sheba dude. So, dude, you got three days. Go gather all the forces. And, uh, and he says, and be present here yourself. So, verse 5, Amasa went to assemble the men of Judah, but he delayed longer than the set time which David had appointed him. Some people say, well, Amasa delayed because he's really not loyal to David. He's not really excited about the assignment. That assumes stuff that the text doesn't tell us we don't know. I mean, that could be true. It could not be true. It's total speculation. Uh, Another speculation, which we have a little more evidence to suggest this, is that he's just not very good at his job. I mean, he he lost the war after all, you know? And so some are just like, he's just not up to the task. The dude's incompetent. 
Whatever the case is, we read here that uh, it's, he took longer than the time that David appointed. Verse 6, and David said to Abishai, remember Abishai is another one of his generals when he went after Absalom's forces. He divided all of his forces amongst three generals. Abishai was one of those guys. Joab was one of the others. Uh, and so on. And so, um, and so he says to Abishai now, okay, now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he find for himself fortified cities and escape us. So what he's saying here is, look, we've got to deal with Sheba. We've got to deal with Sheba right now. He's divisive. He's a pot stirrer, just like Absalom was. And I sat around and I didn't do anything about Absalom. And I let him do his damage. And it cost the lives of 20,000 plus people. And now this Sheba dude is going to be worse. So we've got to deal with him right now. That's why he gave a mass of three days to get everybody. Because the clock is ticking, man. So, so here he's telling Abishai, get on it. We cannot, we cannot mess around with this. And, um, and so, you know, the Bible says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. But, but Sheba ain't, ain't no peacemaker. He's not going to have it. Verse 7. Uh, and so Joab's men, with the Cherethites, the Pelethites, and all the mighty men, these are the special forces of Israel, they went out after him, and they went out of Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. And when they were at the large stone, which is in Gibeon, Amasa came before them. So what's happened here, Amasa took longer than three days. He's, he's kind of incompetent. And so David turns to, to uh, Abishai, and he goes, all right, you take the troops, and you go. And now apparently Joab goes with him. He's, we're going to read he's all dressed in battle armor, so he's serving as a field commander. He's not, you know, David demoted him from being general. But, but now he's still going to serve. He's going out to fight. And so what's happening here is that Amasa, you know, is, is, is running up to catch them. You know, this is like, you know, your punk little brother when you and all your friends used to go out. And he'd come running, pulling his pants up behind, trying to catch up. And so this is, that's the image I have anyway. So Amasa comes before them. It says, now Joab <clears throat> was dressed in battle armor, and on it was a belt with a sword fastened in its sheath at his hip. So he's got a sword on his side. And as he was going forward, the sword falls out on the ground. This is Joab. His sword falls out on the ground. And we don't know if he did this on purpose or not, just to kind of create a diversion. It would seem that that's what he did. And as we continue, it says, Then Joab said to Amasa, Are you in health, my brother? And he, Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. He's got a handle here on his face. And he's like taking him to kiss him. It was an, it was an insult to touch a man's beard unless you were touching him in this way. Oh, hey, my brother, how are you? And he's, you know, betraying this guy with a kiss, as it were. <clears throat> but Amasa did not notice the sword that was in Joab's hand. He drops the sword on the ground. He picks it up. Oh, brother, how are you? This is what's going on here. And so he doesn't know the sword that was in his hand, verse 10, and he struck him with it in the stomach and his entrails poured out on the ground. All of his guts just right there. And he did not strike him again, thus he died. And then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. Meanwhile, one of Joab's men stood near Amasa and his bleeding carcass there on the ground. And he said, whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, follow Joab. In other words, hey, there's a new sheriff in town. Looks like Joab's general again. So who's going to follow him, you know? But Amasa wallowed in his blood in the middle of the highway, and when the man saw, this guy that stood up and said, hey, you know, who's, who's with Joab? When he saw that all the people stood still, he moved Amasa from the highway to the field, threw a garment over him. Let's just get that sight out of the way and say there's nothing to see here. So he moves it out into the field, throws a garment over him, and when he saw that everyone who came, when he saw that everyone, because everybody's coming, they're all, it's just like, I'm driving by March Air Force Base yesterday and all the jets and everything, everybody's stopping, you know, there's a little fender bender. It's like, you know, 20 minutes for everybody to stop and look, this is exactly what's going on here. So when he saw that everyone who came upon him halted, so he takes the body, covers it up, and when he was removed from the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of of Bikri. They're like, bummer for him. Yeah, I'll follow Joab. He's a bad dude. 
you know, so we'll be safe with him. And he went through all the tribes of Israel to, to Abel and Beth Makkah and all the Beerites. And so they were gathered together and also went after Sheba. So they're on the run. Sheba's running. They're chasing after him. And then they came and they besieged him in Abel of Beth Makkah. And they cast up a siege mound against the city. And it stood by the rampart. And all the people who were with Joab battered the wall to throw it down. So what they're doing is they're, they're starving everybody. They've closed it off. Nothing's going in. Now we're going to break down the, the door and we're going to come in and we're going to kill everybody. That's the idea. That's the attitude. We, we're, we're not going to take any prisoners. This dude is going home in a body bag. And for all y'all who are going to house him, you are too. Uh, then a wise woman cried out from the city, here, here, please say to Joab, come nearby that I may speak with you. And when he had come near to her, the woman said, Are you Joab? And he answered, I am. And then she said to him, Hear the words of your maidservant. And he answered, I'm listening. And so she spoke, saying, They used to talk in former times, saying that they shall surely seek guidance at, Ab- at Abel, and so they would end disputes. It was a very renowned city for a lot of wise people. That's the idea. You got, a, you got trouble, you need some wisdom, go to Abel, because there's a lot of people there. They're really smart folks. They're really wise. And so she says, verse 19, I'm among the peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city and a mother in Israel. Why would you swallow up the inheritance of the Lord? And Joab answered and he said, Far be it, far be it from me that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not so. But a man from the mountains of Ephraim, Sheba, the son of Bichri by name, has raised his hand against the king, against David. Deliver him only and I will depart from the city. In other words, he goes, Look, I don't have anything against you guys. I want Sheba's head on a stick, you know? And so, uh, so the woman said to Joab, watch, his head will be thrown over, you, over the wall to you. You just wait here, you know? <laughs> I hope you're opened, because here it comes, you know? And that's the, <laughs> that's the attitude. And so she says, just watch for it, you know? And... Um, And so, uh, watch for his head, it'll be thrown to you over the wall. Then, verse 22, the woman, in her wisdom, went to all the people, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri. They threw it out to Joab, um, and then he blew a trumpet, and they withdrew from the city. Game over. (laughs) We got it. Every man to his tent, and so Joab returned to the king at Jerusalem. Listen, a lot of words there, and I'm just going to close this up with, with one big application, because what we have here is a spiritual analogy of you and me, okay? And here it is. The city of Abel, this city that's, that's, that, 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 that they're surrounding, that Sheba has gone into, the city, it's a picture of you. It's a picture of me. And, and Sheba is a picture of our rebellious sin that lurks within the walls of our city, okay? Sheba is a picture of of the rebellious sin. I want you to get it in your mind right this moment. What's the Holy Spirit saying to you, speaking to you about the rebellion that's in your heart, that's in in your life, that that pet sin that you don't want to put to death? That's the thing. And the, 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 you know, the, the Joab standing on the outside calling for Sheba's head, look, that's a picture of God. And he's standing right now at the door of your heart and he's saying, I want that sin that dwells within the walls of your city and I want you to cut its head off and I want you to throw it over the wall to me. That's the idea. God doesn't want to kill the city. God doesn't want to kill you. But if you won't put to death that that sin, if you won't let go of that sin, if, they, if you love that sin more than you love your soul, then your body's going to be destroyed. And so we have a picture here of rebellion. And we have a picture here of, 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 how, of how, how are we going to make things right? 